Well, that's a good gospel. We're saved by the one who crushed the serpent's head. And we can sing boldly and have the greatest of confidence because of our Savior. We're going to open up the book. We're going to seek to find him in the text. And we're going to ask for God's spirit through prayer to to work in us and change us and to build our hope and confidence in the things that we just sang together. I'll invite you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's blood and righteousness. And so we renounce anything other than that to save. And so by and through your mercy in him, Lord, as we belong to you, as we've been saved by him, would you treat us with grace? Would you give us your word this morning as bread to feed our hungry souls where we could be renewed and transformed and let your word sink deep into our souls? This is how we live. And so bless us this this morning as we turn to you, gracious Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's good to be back with you. Been gone for a couple weeks. Uh, Last week, my family and I took a vacation uh, down to uh, the Destin, Florida area. That was great. It was restful. It was fattening. It was expensive. It was everything it should be, kind of crazy. And uh, the beach this year was was a lot more crowded than I've ever seen it. Um, Down by the water, uh, people started setting their stuff up, and it went all the way back almost to the boardwalk and the street. Crazy to see. Makes for some good creeping people watching. I like to do that. And uh, on the last day of the vacation, I was on my way down to the beach with my boys and I, and we were going down the deck stairs to the beach, and I saw this man out on the sand. He had this big, bright orange t-shirt with these big, bold block letters across his shirt um, that said, love is God. And I was like, whoa. I did a double take, and I thought, what an interesting shirt. And I think it's because of what we've been learning through the series of 1 John being um, how love is not God, but how God is love. And so I thought to myself, man, I really hope that I get a chance to talk to that guy. And so you know me. I prayed. I waited it out. It took about an hour. But there he came after about an hour down to the water with his beautiful little daughter. And I was like, here's my time. And so I went up to him. I said, wow, what a beautiful little daughter you had. We connected over the conversation of having children and what a blessing that is. And uh, before I asked him about his shirt, I asked him what he did for a living. And he said, I'm a pastor. And I said, wow, okay, uh, of what kind of church? And he said, of a Bible-believing, non-denominational evangelical church. And to be honest with you, um, when I heard that, I was, I was kind of taken back. Um, It was kind of hard for me to understand why he would ever wear a shirt like this. Um, And so after learning about his story and his role and having some conversation, I didn't believe it was the time and place to address the t-shirt. Honestly, I was just hoping to share the gospel with a non-Christian who wasn't familiar with the Bible to reveal why the fact that God is love is better news than love being God because God being the self-existing one alone has the authority and ability to define what true love is. And him doing that has revealed exactly what that is through the death and resurrection of his son. How God being love has revealed that his love is holy, that it is merciful, that it is just, that it is humble, that it is kind, that it is steadfast and directed towards rebels. 
I was ready. I was really ready to do that. I wanted to tell him that true love has been displayed through God and the sending of his son to die for sin on a cross so there can be true, pure, holy forgiveness, reconciliation to God the Father, and the hope of eternal life springing forth from the soul. Um, This morning, you'll see there up on the screens that we're diving back into the letters of John. We're going to dive into the book of 2 John this morning. and, And this pretty much is the theme once again. Above and beyond all else, the Apostle John has on his mind for the church to communicate to them what true love is. How love, biblically, must start with God because without it, Christ can't be known. But with it, Christ not only can be known, but experienced and lived out by and through God's people. And the good news is when God's people embrace this love through Christ to one another, God's intention for this type of love in community is to build, grow, advance, and uphold his church. That's God's intentions behind what is truth and what is love. Um. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open this morning. We're going to be in the book of 2 John. If you don't know where that is, it's way on the right-hand side of your Bible near the book of Revelation. And uh, if you're following along this morning, taking notes, you'll see there, I titled the sermon, The Making of a Mature Church with True Love. From this text, I'd like to show us three things. Number one, I'd like to remind us of what is gospel truth. Number two, I'd like to show us Christ-like love. And number three, heavenly blessings. Three points, gospel truth, Christ-like love, and heavenly blessings. We're going to begin our time together by reading the entire book together. It's only 13 verses, so it's doable. Ready or not, here we go. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, and that is though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. My brothers and sisters, we have before us this morning God's word. 
We're very thankful for it right now. We're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you gospel truth. We've uh, now found ourselves in John's second letter to the church. Just uh, a few weeks ago, we finished our study through his first uh, letter that had five chapters within it. But here in this book, there is just one. And uh, John, for us, here kind of gets right to the point. And if you look in verse 1, you'll notice the interesting choice of words that John uses in his greeting. He begins and says this, The elder to the elect lady and her children. The term elder here was a, a, a common term for pastoral letters of local congregations. In the early church, it was used to designate a certain class of officers or church overseers. You might remember how the Apostle Paul in his itinerant preaching, whenever after he finished doing gospel ministry in a certain gospel area, he left then. But before he left, he, how he um, elected and um, put into place elders to lead those churches in true gospel teaching and ministry. But if you look here, John doesn't call himself an elder, but rather what he calls himself is the elder. What he's doing here in this introduction is reminding this church of his special authority given to him by Christ as an apostle over the church at large. In other words, John here isn't just any elder, but he is one of the original 12 disciples chosen by Christ himself to teach and lead the church in pure Christian faith, practice, and doctrine. And if you look there, he's not using his authority as some would expect church leaders to use it oppressively. But rather what we see through his words are a more type of familial affection. To the elect lady and her children, family language, whom I love. At a first glance, this term, elect lady and her children, kind of seem uh, weird and, and vague. But it's helpful for us as we seek to interpret what's happening here to keep in mind how throughout the um, entirety of the New Testament, the word for church in Greek actually occurs in feminine form. What John is doing here is addressing the, the local church. So James, how can the church be a lady? Well, it is not in a literal sense. It, it's, a, it's a metaphor. But the, but the church at large in the New Testament, especially found throughout John's writings when we get to the book of Revelation, do you remember what he calls her? He calls her the bride of Christ. And her children here that John is speaking of are its members. In verse 13, you'll notice how John is writing to them from a sister church who also have children. In other words, what makes up the bride of Christ is the universal church, and what makes up the universal church are local churches who have within themselves covenant families and members. And uh, the reason why John is writing to them yet again is because of the continued threat of false teaching. The false teachers of John's time in this context were known as the Gnostics, the Gnostics were a group of false teachers and pretenders and imposters who said that they were Christian, had religious influence, presented themselves to the church in the name of God, but who were at the core of their teaching, denying the foundations of the gospel that the church has been taught since the beginning. They taught that Jesus was not fully God, therefore his death could not fully atone for sin. And they also taught that you can live however you want it without it affecting your salvation just as long as you had the correct knowledge of God 
and were pursuing spiritual enlightenment. Their doctrine of sin did not require a savior to deal with it. Rather, their hope was in achieving vain and vague higher knowledge and spirituality. And so this is what John is fighting here in this text. And uh, to fight it, you'll notice that the word that he repeats here um, five times in the first four verses is the word truth. That's how he fights anti-gospel. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. The purity and presence of truth is what John has and or is most concerned with for this church. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6? The famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John here is opening up this letter to the church with apostolic authority and family-like love. And before he gives any command to these believers to do anything, he makes sure to emphasize this. What? That there is an objective, undeniable, and non-negotiable truth concerning the person and work of Christ. In other words, if Jesus becomes anything other than the fully incarnate Son of God, who alone was sinless and made vicarious atonement for sin on the cross for us, then we will lose God and the gospel will be stripped of the power to do anything. In layman's terms, if Jesus is watered down to becoming a moral teacher, if Jesus is looked at or embraced as a spiritually enlightened man, if our preaching becomes self-help programs or inspirational talks to get you motivated to help yourself try harder or do better, if I stand up here to make you try and become a mere um, spiritual person, or if the word of God itself becomes anything less than inerrant and inspired, written by the Spirit of God himself. Our gospel will amount to nothing. The church will not have salvation. There is only one gospel. It's time-tested and true. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, sinlessly and completely died for the sin of God's elect people to defeat Satan and the powers of sin and death for you and me. It is free and it is complete. Amen. There's no other gospel. It's the only way to know God. It's the only way to be saved. There is no other pathway to spirituality or true good living. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatian church as the Judaizers infiltrated to pervert that pure gospel? He said this, If I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one I preached you at first, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
One credible ancient historian, he lived around the time of the false teaching Gnostics. His name was Ignatius. He said this, Jesus suffered all these things for our sake, that we might be saved. And he suffered truly, even as he was truly raised up himself. Not as certain unbelievers maintain, these Gnostics, that he only seemed to suffer, or as they themselves only seemed to be Christians. Let no man deceive himself. They who believe not in the blood of Christ shall, in consequence, incur condemnation. The danger here that John is addressing to the church is relevant here and now to us because it is the same danger and false gospel that has crept its way into the modern church. James Montgomery Boyce, a respected theologian and commentator, said this, The danger is not so much in secularism or communism or any other anti or obvious anti-Christian system. The danger is in that which goes by the name of Christianity but excludes the true Christ. This message here is relevant because you and I live in the Bible Belt where some people believe that they are Christian because they were born and raised in a Christian family and go to church. This message here is relevant because some people believe in their, that they're Christians merely because they seek to l- try to live a morally upstanding good life and identify with one certain political party. We live in a nominal culture of self-proclaimed Christians who have only the veneer of godliness. Mainline churches preaching to satisfy itching ears. Gathering to perform and entertain. Totally disregarding the necessity of the gospel message, which is you have to come to an end of yourself, even your life and your sin, and cry out to God and be saved Beg him for mercy so then he can have mercy and fill you with the Holy Spirit and you could be born again by the Spirit of God and live unto God alone and pursue holiness and righteousness and the person of God himself. That's the gospel. You have to be born again to be saved. You have to have the Spirit of God in you, dwelling richly, clinging to Christ alone to be saved. Longing to see the face of God. That is the true fruit of Christianity. A life that has a confession of orthodoxy, but also a life that bears fruit of salvation. Longing, chasing, hungering after God. And if you look there in verses 1 and 2, this is what you're going to see. John doesn't only affirm the gospel knowledge in the church's heads, but look what he says. He says that it lives in them. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true when a person has been filled by the Spirit of God and God himself lives in their souls. Sinners saved by grace, by a merciful and gracious God who loves, who has loved with a perfect love, a holy love. John hears rejoicing. Why? Because this is what the church here is doing. This is what they were doing. They were clinging to this. So why then would he write to them if they were already doing this? 
to tell them to keep doing it. It's a reminder. Stay straight. Why do we need to be reminded to stay straight? Because we, just like them, are prone to wander and we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Prone to intellectually embrace the gospel, but in our hearts, push it away. Seek to elevate ourselves to a life of godliness or spirituality based on our own works and prayer life and righteousness. It's not the gospel. I was in Florida this week and uh, um, money and successful people and beautiful homes and beautiful women and alcohol and vanity and body image were all there. You name it. Everything was calling out. My heart all week struggled through all of these things. So every morning I got up and I prayed to the Lord that he would rescue and save me and, and keep me holy. But in this struggle down at the beach, do you know the, the false gospel that I was tempted to embrace as an imperfect man? That if I just did better the next day, God would love me more. That if I just elevated myself to a higher level of repentance, this holy ideal level of repentance, if I could just get there, then he would accept me. And it was a heavy yoke of chain and oppression. Why? Because it is not the gospel. The gospel is that God alone saves. There is only one who is righteous. And if you are in Christ, your righteousness does not come from yourself, but it comes from him, from an outside party where God himself declares it over you. And it is received by faith, faith, graciously in Christ alone so God alone could get all the glory alone and your faith and salvation would not go like this on the chart based on your own merit or spiritual performance but always would stay here because Christ stays here. And so this is the message that we are seeking to preach. Christ in Christ crucified. Our message is not become a better person. Our message is not clean yourself up. It has not become more spiritually uh, pure. It is not um, work, meet God halfway, or do certain things. It is not believe more. It is not pick yourself up by your bootstraps and show, how, show God or prove to God how good you could be for him. It is that the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, completely atoned for sin on the cross freely and offers you that free grace, freely, Denomination won't save us. Theology won't save us. Ministry won't save us. Your family's Christian label won't save you. Your feelings won't save you. If you feel spiritual, that won't save you. There's only one who saves. It's Jesus Christ. If you add or take anything away to that gospel, it becomes an anti-gospel. And so I want to ask you an application of what I'm telling you this morning what is your anti-gospel that you are so tempted to cling to? You might say, no, I believe in the gospel. Amen. I know you get it here. I'm asking here as you consider your, your standing before God throughout the week. What makes you feel close to God and what makes you feel distant from God? Think about that. Did you know that when you were in Christ, your proximity and acceptance before God never changes? So introspection can help you understand what are your idols. And so with the Son of God himself, smash that to give you true freedom.
Smash that. By the power of God, smash that. God is for you. He sent his son to die for you simply because he loves you. It's so good it's almost hard to believe. But his word says it. Amen? That was point number one, the gospel truth. We're going to continue to move through this text, and I'd like to show you now point number two, which is Christ-like love. Well, after building up the truth of the gospel or the truth on the gospel, you'll notice in verse 4 how John moves to affirm the church's active walking in it. In other words, what they were doing, like I said before, is that they were already practicing this and living it out. And then in verse 5, he goes on to ask them to do it more. He acknowledges that this is no new teaching, something that they have already been taught. What is it? Verse 5b, if you look there, that they love each other. That's John's request in light of the gospel, that they love each other. No new teaching. They already got it in his first letter. Do you remember um, 1 John chapter 4? This is what he said to them in the first letter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God and uh, born of God knows God. And whoever, I'm sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Here's the logic. God is love. He has displayed this love to the death of Christ on the cross for our sin so that you and I can live. Now, therefore, since you and I have been recipients of this love, it is not enough for us just to believe in it, but rather the command here is that we'd walk in it for the sake of community and life of God's people in the church so they could continue to grow in knowing and experiencing God's love in Jesus Christ through the gospel, through you. Sounds great, right? Let me ask you this question. As you think about love, when you think about love, what is the first thing that comes to mind? I think most people would say feeling, right? I think that's because our culture is all about love being a feeling. They say, do whatever you feel uh, that is right. Do whatever feels good. Love is passionate in our culture. It is sensory. It is accepting. It's soft. It's kind of mushy and gushy. It's tolerable. It's, it's nice. And, and some of these things that I've just mentioned are okay. But let me ask you this follow-up question. What do we see in and through Christ on the cross? Do we not first and foremost see the holiness of God held up? Do we not see the love of God displayed in suffering? Do we not see faith in God displayed in obedience to the point of death? Do we not see costly service? Do we not see forgiveness towards wretched sinners? Do we not see open and unmerited invitations to rebels called to come and be reconciled to God and a people? This is the issue right here for the Christian, for us, that we most clearly understand what is true biblical love. That love is not God, but God is love. Therefore, we do not follow our culture and make up in our mind whatever we think love should be, but rather that we follow the model and image 
that God has displayed of love through the Son of God hanging on a cross. That vile and wretched death instrument that killed the Son of God and was nailed to the tree for you and me. That's love. And if you look there in verse 6, John says this, and this is love, that we walk according to God's commandments. In other words, love has hands and feet. Christ is the fulfillment of the law of all of God's commandments. Therefore, to follow God's commandments is to follow Christ. And where does Christ bring his disciples as he says, come follow me? To the cross. He says, come follow me. Take up your cross. How did Christ use the law and God's commandments other than to selflessly serve others to the point of death so people outside of his own very life would live eternally and be set free? My brothers and sisters, I ask you from this text, what is your definition of spiritual love? If Jesus died for the church, for those who are sitting next to you this morning, shouldn't we? I had this group over my house on Thursday night. We had a beautiful time. Spend time in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And what we discovered present in the early church as they spent time in each other's houses daily. And then from that, they loved each other, broke bread with one another, gave things to each other, looked after each other's needs. There's these two guys, I don't even know if this is the right thing to do, but um, two commentators, I'm going to try to combine both of their, um, their commentaries. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. It's not my words, okay? There you go. Bear with me. It's a bit intellectual. I'm going to slow it down, but it's really good quote. Why do Christians love one another after all? Is it not on the ground of some special but imagined compatibility? For they are often highly incompatible. Is it not merely on the ground of some deeply shared goals or programs, as would be true, for example, of some voluntary social service agency, though Christians do have many goals in common? What binds Christian community together is a common commitment to truth out of which love rises. The question is not whether we know about love, but whether we know love truly. Love does not begin with the emotions so much as with the will. Yet as we set ourselves to the work of the good of others, whatever the personal cost, we so often find that our feelings of concern and care develop into real affection and love. The mark of Christian authenticity is to make that conscious decision of the will to give ourselves away to one another. John here is writing to the local church. So right from this text, we have a direct application. And I ask you as the people of Parkview Church, is this place, are these people, your priority, mission, and intention in your pursuit of knowing Christ and making him known? I'm I'm just handing you the scripture and placing it right on your lap. The application is the people who are sitting next to you. I'm rejoicing because I know many of you who are doing this. I'm hearing rumors and and being part of some of it. Mothers and, and women, sisters gathering in people's homes to be with one another. Brothers, fathers, gathering, 
share a drink and share life with one another. Families going to other people's houses and sharing dinner with one another to know each other so we can bear each other's burdens and, and, and be equally yoked and encourage one, one another in the faith. Praise God. Thank you for building this church up on the gospel. I know it seems ordinary, but can't you see from this text how extraordinary it is? How the Spirit of God works through ordinary means like, like this? Those people who have immature or incomplete faith are those people who have this vague spiritual idea of love whose pursuit of God has nothing to do with his people in the local church. It's from this. I don't, and I don't say this in a condemning way. I say this in an invitational day. You're wanted. We want you to come and be part of this. Come and know us. Not through program. Just, just be a person. I want to know you. We all want to know you. If you're not involved, consider what you're missing. You're, 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 you're missing God's will for you to know Christ and make him known to his bride. To edify it and support it and build it up and share your life. And, 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 and you know this as well as I do, especially if you've ever had to have a conversation with me. None of this is perfect that we're doing here. We're actually pretty messy people. If you get to know the internals of the church, it's a bunch of sinners with insecurities and imperfections and anxieties, right? This is what real life is. And so the church is made beautiful, not when the church pretends to be perfect, but when it commits itself to covenant communion for the sake of God's glory, and Christ is lifted high and exalted when grace and love and mercy and humility is given to one another, when we bear each other's burdens, that is covenant community, to bear with one another and stick it out and not be anti-committal. For Christ, be committal and give your life and your calendar away to these people so Parkview Church, as it participates in the universal church, can participate in the glory and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts at the dinner table, at the kitchen table, at the park. This is where it happens. It's glorious. It's not a social club. We gather because of there is the, the Son of God. The church is a place where hard truth is spoken. Verse 7. The church is a place where hard things are worked through. Verse 10. The church is where true spiritual love is not vague or falsely humble, but displayed in costly service and sacrifice through life shared together with God's people. I want to ask you how you view the people that you're sitting next to in the community of Parkview Church. My invitation to you through the gospel, I know it doesn't sound great, it's actually pretty rough, but it's glorious, is for you to come and die for the people that Christ died for. So together with God's people, the Spirit can be poured out and you could be blessed. You remember the way that the Apostle Paul spoke to the, the Thessalonian church? He said, I was eager to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also my life also. And in this, I became affectionately desirous of you. <laughs> this is not just gospel ministry, but this is gospel ministry with people. And at the end of this thing in verse 13, you see, or 12, you see John longing to see these people face to face. What was going to happen when he saw them face to face was that he was going to be filled with joy. As he says, the people in the church fill him with joy. 
<laughs> what a great message that we're brothers and sisters and we belong together and together we are better. Amen. I'd like to show you point number three and to finish our time together with um, heavenly blessings. Um, if you're anything like me, you might feel like sometimes your love is weak. Ever feel that? And um, you might hear Jesus' words say that it's more blessed to give in than receive. Remember, Jesus says, if you give your life away, you'll find it. If I could just make a confession right now, maybe you can identify with this confession. There are times where I seek to give my life away and lose it for the sake of gain, but in my obedience, I'd actually don't feel a thing. Volunteering and serving people and the church, and there's no bubbly or happy feeling. In fact, there's just emptiness. So it makes service hard, loving people hard. And here's why I think this happens. Because in our fallen nature, we make idols. And along the way in our service, what becomes the idol are ministry fruits and people loving us and things changing on our behalf. People in ministry are not the end of the gospel. They are a means to the end, and the end is God. We forget why we come here and why we serve in our obey, obedient and volunteer. We don't do it to serve and volunteer and have people. We do it to discover and behold the face of God. God is the prize of people in ministry. Beholding his face and knowing him and volunteering and loving and serving and being part of community with commitment intentionally to know Christ. Then you find God. And when you find God and you're treasuring him, that, that, that yoke of serving and volunteering is light and easy because you're not distracted or ultimately let down as they are your hope. In finding something fulfilling, fulfilling, but God Himself is the fulfillment of people in ministry. Is that a fight back an anti-commitment, or when the church fails to meet your expectations? God, finding God and serving God, He'll never let you down. He'll always pour out His blessings on you when you move into ministry for the sake of knowing Him and seeking Him and finding Him. He'll show Himself, and your soul will bubble up with the gospel as you see the church of the redeemed, and you will start to grow affection for them. You'll start to love them. Even people who are not like you, who have different personalities and who disagree with you on things, you'll start to just pray for them. And so we end off where we began because of our imperfect love or lack thereof. Beholding the one who loved us first before we did anything. Who will never stop loving us because he loved us first, purchased and brought us to himself. The promise that you see in the first verse there is a promise for all of God's people when we embrace the truth and we seek to love grace, mercy, and peace will be poured out on you and the rest of the church to the glory of Christ. I just want to give you two points of application. No pressure. 
uh, two things. Today we're going to have a, uh, our fifth Sunday lunch together. Um, you should come. If you can't, it's okay. But if you come, would you sit next to somebody you don't know or somebody who's a new face at this church to apply the gospel practically with your hands? Look for somebody who you don't know. And um, maybe you could help us um, set up or tear down and stay after a little bit. If you have little children, that's hard. I totally get it. You can go home. Um, and secondly is this. Today we have community group signups there in the back foyer. We're going to try to be t- together as a church this year. We got 10 community groups, give or take. And this is the way that we mingle cross-generationally and cross-culturally. And we try to make this place beautiful just by gathering one another's houses throughout the week. And so would you consider doing that? It's ordinary, but it's actually extraordinary. The Word says, promises to use it. And in it, there's a great reward. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that um, you don't call us to do without anything ever first being done. And it is in and through what has been done where we, in our obedience, can find you. And man, there's nothing better than finding you losing our lives and smashing our idols with the gospel so we can be free. Would you raise Parkview Church in maturity, gospel maturity and truth and love? We're ordinary, Lord, but in, in your eyes we're extraordinary and we're beautiful. Make us more beautiful through our obedience, Father. Christ, you're worth it. It's just worth it to follow you. And so we love you and we give ourselves to you because you gave yourself to us. We pray in your name. Amen.